Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Cyber criminals are on the rise as cyber crime seems to be becoming a rapid growth industry. Cyberspace has brought an increasingly appealing opportunity for criminals, activists, and terrorists motivated to make money, get noticed, cause disruption, or even bring down any individual or any entity across nations, its government, industry, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, through cyber attacks. Cyber crime is no longer a dark and secret phenomenon limited to just few opportunities scattered across nations. Cyber criminals are now serious professionals. From financial crime and corporate espionage to state-sponsored terrorism, the World Wide Web has now become a safe haven for all kinds of criminal activity. The investment required for cybercrime has been insignificant and the returns are heard to be very, very good. In addition, the lack of global security framework across cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS, and the absence of global rules and standards is providing a free reign to this very unwelcome industry. The threat posed by cybercrime is bigger than ever and it's growing exponentially. For each and every entity across NGIOA, there is no escaping the blatant realities of today's interconnected and interdependent world and the complex risk it brings to each one of us in CGS. In 2016, the most successful criminals are those that are able to hide behind the anonymity that the World Wide Web offers and innocent individuals are far more likely to be victimized in cyberspace than in geospace. Now, when the risks seem to be very low for cyber crimes and cyber criminals, the unchecked growth is costing the global economy billions of dollars. While there is an attempt to discuss the cost of cyber crime and cyber espionage, it is equally important to understand and evaluate the damage to its victims, that is individuals, businesses, industries, nations, and global economy. To discuss cybersecurity vulnerability and its impact on international business in CGS, that has become one of the most pressing issues of the digital global age. I'm delighted to welcome Michael Gottker. Michael is the founder and CEO of HackDevNet based in Germany. Welcome, Michael. We are delighted to have you on this roundup. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, let me begin by asking you a very fundamental question. Cybercrime, cyberterrorism, and cyber arms race. Are nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia prepared for this? Very good question. Uh, are we really prepared for this? I think the answer is to an extent there are some ways in which we are prepared, but uh, mostly as a society, as a scientist, as academia, we're not prepared. And there's a very simple reason for this. When we take a look at um, academically and also statistically um, how technologies are implemented and how fast they are implemented, we find out very quickly that the, the different ways in which we uh, need to regulate these technologies always takes a lot longer than the new technology is introduced. So I think that's one of the, the biggest factors that we have with any new technology. When we uh, expand uh, our knowledge and start to implement uh, technologies like the uh, Internet of Things, the policies that we need and the security mechanisms that we need in place are very often not there. And this is very evident uh, in some of the research we've done in the past year. That's very, very true, Michael, because see, the industries are growing so rapidly. Technology uh, changes are coming so rapidly, but the government and the, its institutions and the uh, regulations, 
that are becoming at a very slow pace. It's just like a mismatch, you know, industries, some industries, not all the industries, some industries are in a digital global age that are advancing rapidly and doing everything right. And some industries are still behind and the governments are definitely behind in, you know, catching up. So that is a bigger, big, you know, security is uh, right there that we see across nations. Now, it seems that the cyber crime has corporatized, adopting a very strong profit motivation, uh, greater organization and a sense of professionalism. While there was some money making to be done in earlier days when the cyber crime started, much of this recent turn to profit began to emerge. It seems only in the beginning of the 21st century. Where are we headed if this much, you know, professionalism, it's just like an industry, a very rapidly developing industry, cyber crime, with their own service centers and everything. Where are we going? If the crime is becoming an industry, how are we going to keep up with that? That's also a very good question. I think uh, the ways in which we try to keep uh, pace with what's going on is we actually have to go back to what is the reason why cybercrime is being industrialized. And I think one of the biggest issues that we have right now from a statistical point of view is we have attack data uh, that looks like cybercrime. But in reality, when we take a look at or dig deeper into what we're looking at, the different types of attacks and how they happen, very often, at least I uh, recognize that calling some of these attacks cybercrime is a far stretch. And I think one of the reasons for that is if we take a look at the three cybers, this is cybercrime, cyber espionage, and cyber warfare, we have to see and recognize that the technologies that are used in all three are very similar. And also the lines between all three are very, very blurred. So in reality, when we take a look at statistics about what attacks are happening, and they are basically being discussed as cybercrime, the question that I always ask myself is, does the data tell me that this is in fact cybercrime, or is it actually in reality cyber espionage and warfare? And I think one of the easiest ways to tell is to figure out what is the objective of the attack. And I think that's one of the areas in which we're not very prepared because uh, a lot of people tend to say, okay, well, cybercrime is 90% of all attacks. But if these attacks are classified as internal, and one of the examples is the attacks that we saw in Ukraine, uh, back in November, a customer called me up and asked me uh, if we could help them do some research. And we found out that um, the attacks that look like cybercrime are in reality very similar to espionage attacks and warfare attacks that we've seen from various different nation states. Now, I think the issue is we can't really say 100% that this is this country or that country. But when we take a look at the indicators of compromise and how the compromise happened, we very quickly establish as fact that it's not um, cyber crime, but it's something else. That is very, very true, Michael. I think cyber crime, uh, people are using that term just as a broad category rather than, you know, understanding what actually it is. And you are absolutely right that it is more of a cyber espionage and warfare where, you know, they're after intellectual property and uh, just trying to, you know, have all kinds of thefts. So it is not a petty cyber crime that we are talking about. You are absolutely right about that. Now it seems that the annual we will just use the term broadly as you know all the criminal activities that are happening on in the cyberspace as cyber crime. But it, it is not the way we define crime in geospace. It is much broader category here. Now it seems that the annual global cost of cyber crime is thought to be somewhere in the region of 400 to 500 billion US dollar, according to the reports that I have you know, gone through. Now, the most seriously affected businesses 
are from sectors not traditionally viewed as targets of cyber attacks. And although the government continues to focus on protecting the critical na uh, national infrastructure across nations, businesses and intellectual property rich industries are at a particular risk from this cybercrime, which is, you know, actually, in fact, cyber espionage, as you just, uh, you know, uh, talked about it. So from your assessment, which industries and sectors are rich in intellectual property and they are getting hit the most, you know, across nations? Well, we still have the classical companies that are related to defense uh, and also research. Um, so saying research, a lot of the companies that we see or the entities are universities. Now, some of the attacks that I've seen in the past four or five years, they started off initially at universities. And the reason was because new research, new technologies are uh, coming out in the university. So what you said about IP makes absolute sense, data and IP, intellectual property. Another piece that we're seeing, and this is expanding very explosively the last two years, which is frightening, is that smaller businesses are being targeted because they just don't have the security infrastructures that larger companies do. And one of the ways that we're doing um, or uh, working on technology to help these SMBs is that we need to get to the state where we have what I call automatic defending networks, but at a price and a form that SMBs can afford. Uh, big corporations may be able to afford what we call threat feeds, uh, which pulls in information for 200,000 euros plus a year, but a small SMB doesn't have that kind of money. And the question is, if we see the attacks on one side increase for SMBs, and we see the price of threat feeds increase, uh, and they don't know how to use these threat feeds because they don't have security personnel, then the question very quickly becomes, where's the value? So based on the attack data to answer your question, SMBs are very much a target right now. All the non-traditional companies where people thought they wouldn't be interesting, those are the ones that are really interesting because the effective measures that they have in place to block attacks is very low. That is very true, Michael. You made a really interesting point here that, you know, smaller companies are the target. And in, I think in similar fashion, if you see smaller nations are also a target. And just like small companies that they don't have enough resources to, you know, fight off these attacks or to be proactive in preparation, smaller nations also don't have those kind of resources. And they face, you know, bigger risk and, you know, they are... Uh, at having a lot of you know cyber attacks coming to their way so that is a big you know bigger challenge now as with most technology related crime nations lag behind in legislation for cyber crime at all levels i mean if you look at it uh, if you look at any nation uh, any country if you look at the federal level state level or local level they they are just not keeping up you know in defining the legislation by which they can effectively uh, manage this uh, cybersecurity risk. What are your observations in your nations and the nations that you have dealt with so far? Yes, so um, there are some nations back in uh, the early 2000s, there were approximately, I believe, 15 to 18 countries that signed a, uh, an agreement, a cyber agreement. Um, and after a space of time, uh, I think it was approximately four to five years after the initial first signing, which included some of the standard uh, countries that we would think, we had up to, I believe, 118 countries that had cyber capacity. The biggest issue that we have right now, I think, this is my personal opinion, is that we still don't have a consistent law similar to traditional warfare law that basically states that the, there are targets that are off uh, limits and targets that are legitimate. And I think that's one of the things um, that is changing the way we view security. 
uh, in the past, when we take a look at the internet and the connection of different networks, we didn't have what I call the e-economy. After we started using the internet, we uh, created what was called, <clears throat> excuse me, the e-economy, which means networks that were primarily never connected to each other now were connected, and the opportunity to use that for business was enormous. On the other hand, the dark side of that was that we were now able to attack targets 24-7 every day of the week, uh, 24 hours a day. And this is something that the internet was never built um, to, to secure against. So the very basis of this new economy that is so important to every nation was initially built on a foundation that was inherently insecure. And the second thing that we have now is since the borders are gone, we don't have country borders in the internet. We are trying to scramble each and every individual country and also bigger countries um, and groups like the EU, the US, et cetera, are scrambling to try to find some way, shape and form to control and govern the internet in a way that doesn't hamper the e-economy. And that's very difficult. It is. It is very difficult. And you're absolutely right about that. Now, it seems that there are efforts being made at establishing international legal agreements like you were just even talking about. And there is also an effort to establish guidelines to govern the cyberspace. And many nations' governments are working bilaterally with other countries to try and resolve problems of cybersecurity breaches and intellectual property theft. But I think in my assessment, the fact remains that the international law on cybercrime currently is very weak and asymmetric. Now, amidst the lack of effective cyberspace framework, at this point, I don't see cybersecurity risk management framework uh, that is uh, common across nations, or nor do we have the rules and laws at global level. So how are businesses and industries impacted globally in the absence of effective cybersecurity framework, effective cybersecurity risk management framework, rules, laws, or cyber warfare you know, laws, or you know, any agreement or any institutions that is supposed to be managing or governing these kind of challenges? Right. So governing these kind of challenges is, as you said, it, it is probably one of the biggest challenges that we're facing. Um, I think as an uh, e-economy based society, two, the two biggest issues that we face are the right to privacy. How do we manage that and how do we protect nations, which is something that is so complex. I don't think I'm intelligent enough to resolve that, but it is something we need to discuss. And the second one is the lack of uh, transparency in laws that protect critical infrastructure, nations in their basic form, which equates to an international or electronic human rights uh, declaration. We have the UN. Um, the UN has done some good work in the past uh, and also limiting conventional warfare. Now, the question going through my head is how come we can't manage to do the same thing in cyberspace, but in a way, shape or form that still keeps all these different businesses open because um, Small companies around the block, whether it's in India, the U.S., Germany, or any other country, uh, in the past, these companies have started as very small businesses that were national. Since we have the e-economy, these companies automatically start up as multinational enterprises. And this is something that needs to be discussed because the laws don't only protect national boundaries and critical infrastructure, they also protect the economy in which pays for everything that we have. And I would hope that we as a society, as human beings, are intelligent enough to get to the stage where we say, if we create some laws that doesn't limit uh, innovation, creativity, and business, but does protect certain things, that would be more positive than negative. And I don't know why we don't have that yet. 
That is very true, Michael. That's very true. Now, there are reports that nations will tolerate malicious activity in cyberspace as long as it stays at acceptable levels of loss. And according to some, the acceptable level of loss would be around 2% of national income. Now, if cybercrime and cyber espionage would cost more than 2% of GDP, there are some who feel very strongly that it would prompt much stronger calls for action as nations or its government industries, organizations, and academia will find the economic or financial burden unacceptable. So my question here is how are nations calculating the cost impact of cyber crimes on individual businesses, industries, or nations GDP when we don't have effective tools or we don't have transparency like you just you know were talking about? So how are we calculating that? I think my assumption is, since I'm not in these uh, different groups that make the assessments, I would assume that they're using some type of number of statistical value based on what they're collecting. Uh, but even with collecting uh, numbers and information, just like the breach statistics, we can only collect numbers of attacks that we know and also the damages. But there are so many companies out there that close business because their data was stolen um, through cyber espionage means, warfare means, uh, etc. So I think the problem in reality is actually a lot bigger and worse than a lot of the countries uh, are basically stating. So how do we get to a number that makes the most sense? I think attacking someone uh, without justification for any reason is unjustified. It's the same thing as if we were walking on the street. Nobody can hit you or hit me for, for, for no reason. Uh, it should be exactly the same thing in cyberspace. If I have a website, I should have a right to host my services um, as long as I'm doing them legally. And there are also services that add value to society. So a university, I don't understand why universities should be allowed to be hacked or attacked in any way, just as critical infrastructure, um, banks, insurances, etc. Now, there are pol people that follow political motives, um, and I can't discuss that because I don't know what their actual motives are. Some of them are hacktivists. They will always be in society. That's something that we can't mitigate 100%. But getting back to your question, it should not be acceptable at all to spy or break into someone else's systems just for the sake of taking their data. I mean, that's the basis of the economy. We can't do that in normal companies, or at least we shouldn't uh, tolerate that. So why should we tolerate the same thing in cyberspace? So I'm not sure if it actually answers the question, but um, any number that we... Yeah. I understand your position on that, that we don't know exactly how they are estimating this. You know, it's it's probably the job of economists to talk about, you know, how they measure these, what models they use. So I understand your point there, Michael. Now, it is there's another, you know, uh, point that uh, I get concerned about when I look at all these, you know, different uh, corporations or different uh, entities across NGIOA, that irrespective, uh, irrespective of any entity we talk about in NGIO, in order to measure the immediate financial impact of the cyber you know, attack, three components needs to be evaluated. One is that any entity should know what their assets are in cyberspace, geospace, and space. Number two is that they should know the security vulnerabilities. And number three, they should know the threat of cyberspace. Now, how much effort is put towards identifying the assets, understanding the security vulnerabilities, and evaluating the security threats by individual entities across NGIOA or even nations itself? Because in my observation, or uh, I, I don't see that each and every entity is you know serious about understanding what their assets are. 
right? So I, I don't know if I can assume um, if they're serious or not. I can only um, state what we see based on the research results. So I think when I talk to, to C-level executives, I find out very quickly that most of the traditional ones that are a little bit older don't really have enough information to assess how high the risk is. So I think it's also something that relates to the different uh, age groups. The more younger um, executives that are now starting to enter the market and going into more senior positions, they understand some of the ramifications of cybersecurity. But I think what we need to move away from is the, the fact that many see as a fact that security is just a cost um, incurring department when in fact we have an e-economy. All our business flows through that e-economy which is based on the internet. Security or cybersecurity deals with protecting those interests and protecting companies against attacks in cyberspace. Hence, uh, cybersecurity is not a cost factor. It's actually a revenue generating and protecting factor. And I think we need to change the way we view security in general. We also need to change the way we secure um, our assets. First off, you asked a very interesting question. Do people know what their assets are? That's one of the biggest uh, problems. What are the assets that we need to protect? The second thing, what are the risks? What formula do we use or what standards do we use to uh, basically list the risks that we have? We have things like ISO 27001 um, that are a great start in the right direction. We also have the cybersecurity framework from NIST uh, or NIST, which is also a good start in the right direction. It's centric to um, or started from the U.S., but these are things that we also start to implement in other areas like banks, insurances, et cetera, in the European Union. So I think they're good starts. And I think that's something we can use to start locking down things. But like you said, first off, what are my assets? What do I need to protect? It's data. It's information. If I'm a hospital, it's the patients. It's also the research that I'm doing, um, those types of things. So I think that's a very uh, important factor that you said. We need to make sure that tomorrow's leadership not only knows that cybersecurity is important and it actually protects revenue, they also need to understand how can they assess what the right solutions um, and technology and procedures and processes are based on those assets. Right, right, Michael. Now, it seems that international laws governing cyberspace also provide a means for victim nations or targeted nations, you know, to seek justice and reparations. Now, the first rule in the Tallinn Manual states that nation cyberspace is sovereign territory. I don't know if it is treated like that, but it states that it's a sovereign territory opening up the possibility for cyber attacks to be treated with the same seriousness as attacks on physical territory that is geospace. In your assessment or observation, do you see that cyber attacks have started to be, have begun to be treated with such seriousness? Well, from a business perspective, cyber attacks, regardless of what they are, are treated uh, very importantly because they ultimately try to disrupt operations. From a national perspective, I don't think I have enough data to make an assumption from a global view, but there are some nations that are starting to view this as a lot more important, hence the investments that are being made into a lot of different systems. But I'll give you an example of where we still have a long road ahead of us, maritime cybersecurity. We have, I think, approximately 1.4 to 1.7 million ships that equate to over 90% of our global economics um, and also goods that are transported back and forth. Yet maritime cybersecurity is one of the least known and least invested types of security in the world. 
Now, um, an example of what cybersecurity or attacks can do to maritime is if they're smugglers or terrorists or other attackers, they can break into vulnerabilities in older onboard systems on ships and basically use that to tamper with GPS signals, which means they go in a different direction than they're supposed to. Um, they can lead them into crashing into other vehicles or into pirate ships. They can also modify details on the loading procedures and, and cargo that they have, meaning that if someone wants to smuggle something, they can do that as well. This is just a very small example of why cybersecurity is important on the global scale. And it's not necessarily, is it a question of sovereignty? I think the question of cyberspace is it belongs to the entire world. And hence, is it realistic for us to define a boundary somewhere in the internet? I don't think that's possible. We can try, but I don't really think that's possible. And that's probably a bigger issue. That is true. Now, although the motives of cyber warfare may differ their actions and reactions follow a very standard pattern with cyber intrusion incidents assuming a variety of forms like cyber extortion data manipulation uh, and many other kinds you know so it seems that many hacktivists are targeting to apply sufficient pressures to a government so that it grants political concessions now, if they view the anticipated, if the government thinks that the anticipated cost of future cybersecurity actions as greater than the cost of considering to hackers' demands, then they will give in and, you know, they would do what the hackers want them to do politically. Now, how effective is this approach and what are the long-term consequences to entities across NGIO if hackers or hacktivists are able to, you know, manipulate governments to do things, you know, their way just by, you know, giving threat of, you know, cyber attacks? Well, in reality, hacktivism and actual hacktivists, we, we need to separate that because I think in the last few years, hacktivists have been very murky, the definition. Uh, again, we need to take a look at the data and uh, the indicators of what attacks actually happened. Um, if we're talking about hacktivists, which are trying to use um, IT resources to push a specific political agenda, then that's where I can agree with you. But we're seeing attacks stamped as hacktivists when in reality it is uh, government agents uh, that look like hacktivists but are pushing agendas um, to their means. And this is when we start getting into a very murky, very um, weird definition of what is the actual attack. Is it really hacktivism? Is it cyber crime? Is it cyber warfare? Is it cyber espionage? I think a lot of the attacks that we're seeing today, I would classify more under cyber warfare and cyber espionage than anything else. Because um, a few years back, I believe in, in the Munich Security Conference, there was a very good um, diagram, and I have that on the website, about hybrid uh, warfare. And in hybrid warfare, you have very various different means of basically initiating war tactics uh, to influence another country. And part of that is hacktivism and cyber, cyber crime. So I think, again, when I say the lines are very uh, thin, we need to take a look at what attacks are happening and we need to find out what is the ultimate goal. Why is this attack happening? Who's doing it? But what do they really want to achieve? And when we can answer that question through detailed analysis, big data, et cetera, um, then we can find out a lot more details about what attacks are we really dealing with. And that's some of the stuff that we're doing. No, good point, Michael. That is a good point. Now, most efforts to improve cybersecurity focus primarily on incorporating new technological approaches in products and processes. Uh, however, 
A key element of improvement involves acknowledging the importance of human factor, the human behavior, when we design, build, and use cybersecurity technology. Now, while understanding and incorporating human behavior into cybersecurity products and processes can lead to more effective technology development, the challenge is that it will be a very slow and complex process. And desire to develop an ethical community at all levels across nations is probably becoming an illusion, you know, and to think that, you know, we would be able to bring ethics into, you know, the global community when it comes to cyber attacks. I think that is not going to happen. It's going to be a very, very long, you know, journey before we you know hope that we would be able to bring ethics into the picture, into the human factor. But it's still, it's the human factor that if you look at the, you know, major cyber uh, criminal activities that has happened in the last year, the, it is the human factor that has played a role. So how do we manage that human factor? Managing the human factor will always be an ongoing challenge because humans are by, uh, by definition dynamic. Um, sometimes we decide to do things for reasons that we're not sure of ourselves. So I think this interesting dynamic of how humans actually act and interact based on the situation will always pose a quote-unquote challenge on trying to define and teach them how to act appropriately in cyberspace. I think we do need to work towards establishing some form of ethics because we're seeing in the world today that the lack of ethics isn't helping. Um, and if the, the, the uh, lack of ethics isn't helping, it would tend to lead to the conclusion that if we implement more or better understanding that we're all in this together, that there has to be a certain amount of things that are off limits to every nation, then that could actually improve the situation rather than exacerbate it. So I think engaging human beings and um, teaching people as to why security in general is important, protecting your information is important, giving them the awareness that what you do online can be recorded, uh, stored away, and used against you in, an, in a negative sense um, is something that the new generation has to understand. Look at our kids. Our kids are growing up in a society where IT, uh, Google+, uh, Twitter, Facebook, everything is normal. They post anything and everything, whereas we, from uh, an older generation, we think about what we post online. We think about what we're saying because there's we didn't grow up with the system, and second off, our morals and the way we do things are maybe more intact. I don't know if that's the right word, but the training we had was different, and I think we have to go back to that. Some traditional values of thinking before you say something actually makes sense, and I think that's what we're not seeing in the newer generations. Yes, now that education and awareness, like you say, is going to play a very important role there. Now, security measures are costly. Everyone knows that across nations who have gone through the cyber attacks. Now, cyber warfare raises the cost of doing business in terms of higher cyber insurance premiums, premiums, expensive security precautions in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And they have to also, you know, worry about, not worry about, but focus on giving larger salaries to at risk key security employees, which they cannot lose if they want to, you know, focus on security in their, across their entities. So, uh, what economic impact do you see across nations of such new requirements of security, which, you know, the enterprises were not used to so far, you know, when they were doing business, uh, the cyberspace has brought a lot of new opportunities, but at the same time, cyberspace has also brought a lot of new expenses for these enterprises. And what do you see is the impact because of that? 
There is an impact um, on the, in regards to do, the cost of doing business on the e-economy. Um, I think what we're seeing right now is a move from some values of where money was spent traditionally in the past to different ones, which moves more towards cyber. I would actually say that instead of an entirely new area being built up and money going into, uh, or more money going into this area, I think we're seeing a shift from the traditional areas into the more electronic and security focused areas. And I think this is good and normal. Um, as long as the solutions and the implementations that we do make sense and they add value to the, to the company and to the industry. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest issues we have as a security industry. For instance, what we do is we take a look at open source technology. We do a lot of presentations at um, the security conferences to spread awareness and to share the knowledge that we have. This is perfectly normal in a security conference or the security community. It's not normal in the corporate world because a lot of corporations are used to hiding and not sharing the results to help each other uh, combat, for instance, cyber crime, cyber warfare, et cetera. And I think maybe that is also a part of the issue that could help us reduce the total cost of implementing security measures, right? So the other thing is um, secure coding practices that we've been talking about for over 20 years. People are now starting to listen uh, uh, to this. And one of the examples is the Internet of Things. Um, the marketing side is we now have a new product that we can sell and make money on. But the security person is saying, well, you've implemented a lot of technologies in the past and it didn't work out very well because you never built security into the process. An example of that is, for instance, rail railway systems that are based on SCADA. I can look on online uh, searching websites and I can tell you which different components on railway track systems are vulnerable to SCADA attacks even today. Another example is, and I talked about this at the Davos conference last year, was that we have mini computers or FPGAs in heating systems. These heating systems can control gas flow and pilot lights. Now, if you hack into these systems and turn off the pilot light and keep the gas flow on, your guess is as well as everyone else is what can happen. And these are the dramatic pieces that we need to recognize. We need to recognize that the system is broken and we need to implement security from the beginning when we develop new technologies, not afterwards. And that's uh, interestingly enough, um, it's cheaper to integrate security from the beginning than to push out a product and then say, okay, well you guys think about security uh, in the future. And that's the modus operandi, we need to change that. You're absolutely right. That is the challenge we see across nations that, you know, people are so focused, enterprises, entities, and even individuals, they're so focused on developing products based on just functionality. And security is not part of the picture of, you know, when they design the architecture, they just don't think about it. But I see some positive, you know, indications too that now a lot of organizations are, you know, focusing on security first architecture that, you know, when they design, they want to make sure that what they're designing is secure. So there is a hope, you know, people have, uh, entities have started acknowledging that they cannot just rush the products based on functionality. They have to, you know, address security right from the beginning. So hopefully, you know, we will see some positive results in the coming years. Now, there are some who believe that the duration of the time computer is a factor is a very important determinant of the, you know, security cost or how much, you know, impact has uh, been done because of the cyber attack. 
However, I, in my assessment, nations currently lack effective ability to measure duration of any and all cyber attacks. I mean, if you look at it, so many companies, they don't even know that they have been hacked or that they are still, you know, uh, under attack. And uh, the, how do you, you know, evaluate when we don't have effective tools that can tell you that, okay, whether your mobile, you know, uh, whether your smartphones or, you know, other, you know, equipments are attacked or whether your laptop is under attack, how do you know that it's under attack? So what what is your thought on the credibility of the cost data that is available and incorporated in understanding the financial impact to businesses because of the cyber security challenges or cyber insecurity, if you know, if I can say. Right. So I think evaluating the cost of what an attack is, there are multiple factors that we use to, to uh, basically calculate that cost. Um, some of those costs are known. There are some institutes like the Ponmont Institute that publish the bridge statistics, which is a good step in the right direction. But as you said, uh, since computers, the way we do business and the e-economy is so complex, it's very, very difficult to put your finger down on an exact number of what the damage actually is. And I think um, part of the reason is, like you said, a lot of uh, companies don't know or recognize when they've actually been breached. And um, a lot of the smaller companies that are trying to protect their IP, by the time they find out almost a year later, sometimes two years later, the data has already been stolen and someone else is building the same product. And I've had this instance um, at quite a few of my customers in the past. So um, on the one hand, the cost factor is, is a difficult one. All we can really do is figure out what systems are affected, if there's any downtime, uh, what, or what are our assets? It goes back to the same question you asked last time. If you know what your asset is, you can evaluate the value of that asset. If you can evaluate the value of that asset, then you can use a standard template like risk management processes, and you can start to build a list of the different risks that you face. When you build that list of risks that you face, then you can also create a theoretical damage that will ensue based on the value of that asset and the likelihood of a risk being used or breached or used in an exploit. If you do that using standard technology, this is not rocket science, then you can actually create a very tangible budget that you can use for cyber operations or for cyber defense. And that's one of the things that we do. Um, unlike I don't know if other companies don't do this, but what we do do, and it seems to be very unique, is that we always use standard processes. I'm a very big fan of using a standard process from penetration testing all the way up to evaluating what is an asset. When I know what an asset is, then I can start to protect and monitor what is normal for this asset. And then I can start to use that information to find out and tell customers, okay, by the way, there was a query that was going to a command and control server that we know is a bad uh, server, and uh, we think that you've been infected. Your antivirus hasn't caught the infection, but we can tell from the traffic that you're already infected. We blocked the traffic. Now you need to do something on your site. And that's what we do with technology that doesn't really cost that much. Um, in using open source, we can ensure our customers even though we add our own components and IP uh, to the mix, that there are the likelihood of no backdoors is a lot higher because it's the community that's managing the software. And it's also been tested and it works. And these are some of the things that we can work against um, those different types of attacks, right? So um, in conclusion, managing the cost of cybersecurity will uh, basically decrease uh, the total cost of owning that system. 
managing your assets and identifying your assets will also reduce the effect of um, attacks as they happen. Implementing procedures to protect those assets will decrease the money or the damage uh, in that it ensues from a cyber attack even further. So we see again, it doesn't have to be expensive. Use standards, use processes and procedures, use risk management approaches. They all make sense. And also awareness and education. And then the last piece is um, lifelong learning, um, uh, the ability to, to constantly train yourself and learn new things. Some of the research that we've seen on the management side says that those security teams that are more successful have an open, innovative, uh, and creative atmosphere. They have leaders that tend to be more servant-based leaders than the old traditional forms. And this is also something that can help us reduce the cost of those damages and also reduce successful attacks dramatically. That is, that is, uh, those are good points, Michael, that you made there. Now, let me ask you this. How would you calculate, how would you tell your, uh, uh, or how would you tell organizations or any entity across NGO to calculate the indirect cost of cyber attacks? Because indirect cost of cyber attacks may also include uh, financial harm to individuals and institutions other than the immediate target of an attack. For example, an attack on one's, one firm's computer network may affect other firms up and down the supply chain within and across sectors and industries or nations also. Now, when credit card data is hacked or an internet service provider goes down, consumers suffer costs. So from an accounting perspective, these do not count as cost to the target firm, but from a policy perspective, they can be very significant. So how should nations manage these indirect costs of the cyber attacks? Right, so every component that is involved in an attack is a cost factor, whether um, the current laws see that or not. The realistic value of an attack means everything that's affected within uh, this chain of events is a cost factor that needs to be calculated. And a lot of people haven't done that, like you said. I think the faster or the better way that we can get to calculating total cost is starting off with the first question, a very basic question. What's the value of our personal data? What's the value of my privacy and my data as a person? Then calculating that all the people that are affected by these events um, and also calculating all the different segments within this attack that were affected and to try to get to a bigger number, right? So maybe a good or a, an interesting approach that would warrant further research is finding out what's the value of us electronically as a data set in the internet, um, as a, a data set at the customer side or at the, um, the, the telecommunications side, right? So if we can get closer to that kind of perspective, then we can actually start to realistically calculate what is the cost of an actual attack. Right now, the breach statistics say that uh, an attack can be anything from 150 to over $250 per breached um, record. Now, I think the cost is a lot higher, but nobody has actually attempted to calculate the entire cost of a breach because there's various different factors that are involved in a breach or in an attack. And in order to calculate that financially, you'd have to take every component, calculate it, assign a value to it, calculate it, and then you'd find out what the actual cost of that attack is, right? And then you have the traditional areas that we already know, downtime, how much does it cost if I have servers that I have to, that I have to pay for every month, the energy that I use to power those servers or resources, the people whose salary have to get paid. I mean, those components are well known, but the individual, what is the value of a data set of a person? We don't know that. 
that is true that is true and also there is the opportunity cost that we'll have to consider if there was a cyber espionage intellectual property was lost then you know what is going to be the impact for you know that business or the industry or even the nation because some intellectual property is vital for national security so there are a lot of factors that we need to evaluate you know to understand the actual cost of the cyber attack now there is another point that we i mean we did discuss about the government's lagging behind in you know regulations and all that but there is also another part to it that the compliance driven models our all nations are so focused on uh, compliance driven you know uh, risk management that the compliance driven models for protecting institution from cyber attacks i think and you know there are a lot of people like me who feel, think that they are becoming less and less effective uh, in spite of that there seems to be lack of desire to bring any changes to this seemingly ineffective compliance model so how can any entity across industries be able to develop cyber resiliency in the shadow of compliance driven models because if you see risk management how we you know practice risk management what we how what areas we practice in risk management if you look at it that all entities all enterprises across industries and nations they focus on financial risk they focus on operational risk compliance risk and legal risk those are the only you know areas that are you know addressed heavily but if you look at the overall risk profile that makes up only about 25% of the risk of you know that any entity or any enterprise could be facing any single day the rest is strategic security the what, what is the most important area of risk management is the strategic security risk management and that may plays such an important role right now in the cyberspace because cyberspace is changing all the business model all the operations model all the way how we do things how we bank how we you know make friends how we you know communicate everything is changing because of the cyberspace and that needs to be the biggest area of focus because the strategic risk the business that you have the business model that you have the service that you have products that you have what are the threats to because of the cyberspace what are the threats because of this technology that is coming because of the cyberspace so those kind of risk the strategic security risk that needs to be at the heart of every risk management approach but it is not if you look at the nist framework or if you look at the you know iso each and every risk management framework that you see that lacks that and that i see is the biggest risk that we face right now right so from a compliance perspective we only have part of the picture definitely now uh, and i think that goes back to um, the original problem that technology grows at a more rapid rate than our compliance our regulations and laws do so I, I think there's some laws that we need to have difficult discussions on and finally sort out. Once we have those uh, regulations sorted out about how we define cyber space and how we define the limitations of who's allowed to attack what based on what reason, um, if we ever get to that question mark, um, that would make some things a lot easier. But um, at the end of the day, as soon as you connect a computer to the internet and you do something, you're already at risk and you need to have this awareness that that is um, the reality that you face. If you look to a compliance um, to basically give you 100% security, that's not really gonna happen because compliance will ensure a certain part. It could never really ensure that everything is 100% secure. So I think one of the easiest ways that we, we can move towards something like that, besides using standard processes and procedures that are documented, that are known, that everybody knows what to expect, which is something that we still need a lot to work on. 
The other thing is to um, basically use what we've learned in, in some of the research in the past, that successful teams are creative, they're innovative. Um, successful security teams also have a proactive security mentality. That means employing people that can attack their own computers makes a lot more sense in this world that we live in because we need to attack our own systems and test the security so that someone else doesn't do that before us. And I think that's another thing that I mean by we need to change the way we train security and build security teams. We need to look at security as a proactive thing. Uh, we need to look at security as a way, shape, and form of using people that are creative, that are dynamic, that understand that the reason why antivirus doesn't work and firewalls and UDS, uh, IPS, et cetera, don't work is because um, the nature of threats are constantly evolving. And the reason why they're evolving is because we have cyber espionage and warfare mixed into cybercrime, which makes it very difficult. So when one attack is um, known, it gets reversed in year, and it goes into the next area, right? So it's a very um, evil cycle that we also somehow break, hopefully we can. So in conclusion to that, sorry. Um, so proactive security teams are definitely a way forward. Understanding that um, the regulations and also the standards that we have are only a small portion of that. And um, lastly, using the security community. I keep on saying this, why don't I see enough corporations and people just sending their folks over to B-sides uh, and other security conferences? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, touch base with the people that are involved in the trenches every day of discovering these attacks. I mean, you know, we don't bite. <laughs> you know, yes. um, these conferences, they don't cost a lot. Usually they're for free. And the interaction makes a lot of sense. Yes, yes, it does. Interaction makes a lot of sense. Now, let, let's go back and, you know, when we started this dialogue, we talked about how people or how entities across nations, they uh, cannot differentiate properly whether what is a cyber crime or what is a cyber experience. So for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners, uh, let's go through each of these, you know. So if we look at the cyber, I mean, criminal activities in cyberspace, we can break it down into several different parts. One is cyber espionage, that is the loss of intellectual property and business confidential information. Cyber crime is which costs the world hundreds of millions of dollars every year, just broadly speaking. Cyber theft is the loss of sensitive business information, including possible stock market manipulation. Cyber insecurity cost is opportunity cost, which includes service and employment disruptions and reduced trust for online activities. Cyber cost is the additional cost of securing networks, insurance, cyber insurance, and recovery from cyber attacks, and cyber reputation, which is the most important for many, many uh, enterprises that they have you know, already faced uh, this challenge because of the cyber attack, is the reputational damage to the hacked company. So when we add all this together, all of these you know, different areas of uh, criminal activity in the cyberspace, the cost of cyber crime and cyber espionage to the global economy is as we discussed before it's about 400 to 500 billion dollars you know per us dollars per year do you have any data or do you have any information that can help our viewers and listeners understand these you know fragment better that you know it's because of this how much is because of the cyber reputation damage or how much is because of the cyber theft do you have any data available 
Uh, we have data, but I think it's very difficult. Alone from the different areas that you discussed, uh, determining what attack is what is very difficult. And it always goes back to what is the motivation? What is the ultimate goal of an attack? And if we can get the answer to what the ultimate goal of an attack is, then we can start to calculate and understand a framework of how we can categorize the different attacks and then get to an estimation of what these attacks actually cost. And um, we're a little bit farther away from that right now, but the more research we do in correctly classifying the attacks and also discovering from information that we can collect through the attack, um, the better it is and the faster it is we can get to a, a better model of uh, determining what attack is what based on which indicators of compromise, and then what does the attack actually cost based on statistical data, based on actual historic data. And that's what we're working on. Right, right. Now, it seems that uh, cybersecurity risk perhaps threaten the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Cyber crimes against banks and financial institutions probably cost hundreds of millions of dollars every year. And there's a lot of, you know, there's not much transparency. I mean, you know, no nation is going to come and say that, okay, our bank was hacked with, and we have lost this much. I mean, that is something, you know, they are trying to not, you know, share the information. So cyber theft or intellectual property and business confidential information also cost uh, developed economies billions of dollars. This is unprecedented, but I think the bigger challenge is to what is happening in the developing economies where they don't have much security, where they don't have much awareness about this. What are your observations about the impact that these cyber crimes, all these you know, broad category of cyber criminal activities in cyberspace, what kind of impact it is having on the developing economies? Yeah, as a concluding um, answer, I think to this, um, I would say that security has to be, or security awareness has to be prevalent throughout um, the entire societies or the entire world. Um, I think that cyber attacks, they uh, impact everyone uh, globally, and it's not just a national thing. And I think the closer we can get to an understanding that everyone needs to be at least uh, cyber savvy to an extent to understand how high the risk is, and also to build through academia, through training programs, through corporations, teams of people that can actually help uh, protect each other. And I think that's that's what we need to get to. I think that's that's a big step in the right direction. And that's some of the stuff that we're doing. So um, the research that we do, some of it we, we supply and uh, give back to the public. We also collect a lot of information from the dark net and the normal net about what attacks are going on so that people can protect themselves. We like giving our customers information that their uh, passwords have been hacked or their accounts have been hacked. Um, and I think that makes the most sense. So um, being collaborative with the information that we find, building mechanisms, procedures, and training programs that can help everyone, uh, train everyone up to be aware and to use that awareness to protect and detect attacks, to protect themselves and to also to detect attacks. Yes, yes, now that, that those are good points and good suggestions that you made. Now, technical innovations uh, throws up new cybersecurity threats. For example, the migration of data to third-party cloud providers has created a centralization of data and information, and therefore it gives more opportunities for criminals to misappropriate this critical information from a single target attack. They, they attack a com you know, cloud company. Uh, and they will be able, 
the cloud provider and they'll be able to get data and information of so many different entities they don't even have to work that hard they just have to you know work at one company you know how to attack that so the emphasis on mobile services also has opened up corporate systems to more users just like you know cloud providers so mobile security threat and the cloud security those are two very you know critical areas so they add so much complexity to cybersecurity risks what impact do you see that on the business is because of these two just these two areas of risk okay so mobile security is definitely a very interesting topic it's also um, the topic that we need to stress a lot more than we have in the past a lot of the attacks that we're seeing statistically target the mobile platforms more now because the security on these systems is also very lax. So the business impacts of not securing smartphones uh, and mobile uh, devices in general is one of the biggest risks that we face. And it's also one of the easiest ways to break into a network. So yeah, definitely uh, an area that we need to concentrate on more. Um, and the antivirus solutions that we have right now don't protect against the, the really interesting attacks. That is true. Now let's talk about big data a little bit because I think big data is putting a lot of pressure on security managers as they have so much of sensitive data about buyer decisions, their habits, uh, all the, you know, uh, every single thing that they do, you know, during their day or, you know, what activities they do, what their interests are, any, any and all personal and professional information that they have to keep it safe. Now, but until recently, security was not a top priority in systems handling big data. How much vulnerability this has created for entities across NGI? Because even the big data companies, they were not focusing on security. They were just focusing on the data. So what is the vulnerability that has created for each and every one of us you know, across nations? Right. So the more data we collect um, and the more detailed that data is, the higher a target that data collection actually becomes. So I think um, that's where the ethics comes back into play. Um, the more data we have, the more we are responsible for protecting that data. And we also need to determine that the data that we collect is not used for offensive purposes. And that's one of the things that we're very, very uh, specific about uh, in our ethics. We collect a lot of data that can be used in two different ways, in positive and in negative ways. And I would like to equate that to basically the scientists that work on the Manhattan Project. They thought that they were working for humanity. In reality, some of the technology that was done there resulted in, in uh, technology that was used in warfare. And I think uh, we have a responsibility as those scientists to make sure that we work with the data responsibly, lock it down, and try to make sure as much as we can that it's used for defensive purposes and not offensive purposes. And that can happen very quickly. So, yeah. Yes. Um, okay. I'm sorry. Yes, my battery is about to die. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, do you, you don't have a charger with you? No, I don't have, I don't have the charger with me. I, I okay, really so apologize for that. Let, let's wrap it up quickly then before, you know, you, uh, why don't you, uh, it seems your company had DevNet, you, you know, we were talking before the session started that it's doing some interesting work. Would you like to share that information to our global viewers and listeners, what your entity does and, you know, what your goals are? Right. So basically what we're doing is we're uh, creating what's called a cyber risk uh, intelligence platform. So this basically collects information about all the different types of attacks that are going out there. It also dives into the deep web uh, or dark web as well as the normal web and collects information about what attacks are going on, how these attacks are happening, and also gives people the opportunity to discover that their data is uh, either exposed uh, 
uh, or that their data is about to be exposed. So cyber risks are different than cyber threats because cyber threats are more of a network-based uh, information, but cyber risks include a lot more components. And that's what we're building right now with what we call Cyber Insight and the CyberView technology. Um, the caveat is that as we collect this information, we only give people um, that need to know relevant information about themselves access to their own data. And we limit uh, very much who has access to, to data from other people. So uh, we don't give access to other people. We only give access to customers. And um, I think it makes sense because we haven't seen any other solution out there. So using collection, using algorithms, using logic to dictate or to discover what risks are out there and make these risks relevant to um, the user, right? So why is an APT attack in Ukraine relevant for someone in the US? Why is an attack in the US on Microsoft relevant to someone uh, in Brazil? You know, why is an attack like the Panama Papers relevant to everyone, uh, even though we don't have accounts or anything like that? So collecting information neutrally in a very unbiased way about what threats and risks are actually out there and make it actionable for the person reading it and make it relative to what they're doing uh, and also give them timely information so they can automate defenses based on that information. That's so very, that is a really good information and I think it's a very good initiative. Michael, thank you so much for spending uh, almost an hour of your you know, valuable time and uh, sharing your thoughts and analysis for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners. I'm sure they're going to benefit tremendously from what you had to say and Michael you know in future as we do more research you know as we come across more information about how the cyber security cyber crime cyber criminal activity in the cyberspace is impacting international business and other areas of your interest that you would be willing to come on risk roundup and share your insight again for the sure. benefit of our global viewers so thank you so much Michael thank you so much for having me honor and a privilege thank you Wonderful, Michael. So cybersecurity risks are not only a social, socio-economic issue, but also an ethical, technical, political, entrepreneurial, security, and very survival issue for each and every nation and its uh, entities across government, industries, organizations, and academia. Now, while some cyber attacks and security risks have become public knowledge, there are many, many uh, security risks which are known only to the hackers and the victims. Each entity across NGIOA independently and collectively need to begin the financial and economic analysis and understand the cost of the reported and unreported security breaches in the cyberspace and because of cyberspace in the geospace, the accuracy of the information and data on the security breaches and the reliability of the methodologies that they are currently using. Now, there is a widespread belief that nations currently lack effective ability to measure the cost and probabilities of cyber attacks. Moreover, there are no standard methodologies for cost measurement and the estimates of the macroeconomic or microeconomic cost of cyber attacks are largely speculative. The challenges and complexities of evolving cyber criminal threats and security has crossed the barriers of space, ideology, and politics, and it demands a constructive collaborative effort of all stakeholders across NGIOAI. Now, cybersecurity requires an integrated NGIOA approach with a common language across CGS, that is cyberspace, geospace, and space. 
Now, while appropriate hardware and software is a fundamental necessity, establishing effective cybersecurity framework, integrated NGIOA uh, risk management approach, structured processes are even more important. Now, risk group cybersecurity risk research center and strategic security risk research center are created for this very reason so that we can collectively identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA in CGS, and we can discuss, debate, and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence. And we can have, we can invite a, a very, you know, the accomplished executives like Michael to come on Risk Roundup and share their insights for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feeding to each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or to hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandey, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.